0: Good morning. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer before we open up his word this morning. Father, as we cry out that we need you now, our prayer is not our prayer is that is not as those who were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus when he came in on Palm Sunday, and then just a week later, or just days later. They betrayed him. They turned against him. They walked away. They were apathetic towards him. They supported his crucifixion. They supported his arrest. And people scattered. They so we need you now. We need you every hour to sustain our faith. That our faith is given from you by the power of your spirit. It is not from ourselves. That you have taken us from the very depths of our sinfulness that most naturally just wants to do everything against you, who want to serve ourselves. We've placed our trust in Christ for our salvation. And so I just pray that you you let us not forget the the cost of our forgiveness. As we approach Easter Sunday, as we invite friends and neighbors to the service, we pray for our loved ones and our neighbors and in our school systems or or whoever it might be, our coworkers, those who don't know you. That they're in need of you more than they could ever know. And we pray for their salvation. Pray that you use us to preach the gospel to them. To preach the good news to them. And pray also that you you uh, use our good works that we do in your name as, as ways for uh, if people to witness our good works. That it points them to you. And so we just pray for your blessing over this time as we study your word together. In Christ, and we pray. Amen. Uh, there's, if you lived at all in this life, then you've probably experienced some form of rejection. And uh, we, we know that there's, there's a couple different types of rejection, I think. There's, there's a blatant rejection, right? There's, you ask someone a question, they say no, right? That's blatant rejection. Uh, there's a, a other types of rejection where it's more subtle, where you don't know if they're rejecting you or not, but over time you see that they were indeed rejecting you. In some way, maybe they they chose something over you. Uh, We know this maybe in the dating world, where where you ask someone out, or maybe nowadays you text them, right? And you ask them out, and maybe they'll say no right away. But then there's the unresponsive no, right? Where where you just never get a reply, and, and that's them rejecting you, but they just don't have the heart to tell you no. Uh, We we see this as kids, when we're picking kids uh, uh, to be on our team for the kickball team or basketball team, whatever it might be. And and I was usually the kid that said, would you please pick me to be on your team? Because I was never team captain in those cases. And someone might say, well, I really promised these other people I would choose them, so I'm sorry, but we're not going to choose you, or I'm not going to choose you. And then there's a person that says, well... I'll, I'll try. If you're still available, I'll pick you to be on my team. And then, sure enough, I'm, uh, it might be the person where you're last, and you're not picked. You're placed on a team. And it's still a form of rejection, right? The, the, the whole idea of being rejected goes back to the idea that you're still not chosen to be someone's first option. That you're still deemed not as important as something else or someone else in someone else's life. And it's still a form of rejection. As we go through Palm Sunday, this painting, by the way, is, uh, you can read the name down there. What's something I love about preaching through the scriptures is that uh, during uh, during post Reformation time and all, all sorts of time in, in history, there's some wonderful paintings uh, of, of stories in the Bible. And you could almost Google any story you want of the Bible, and there would be someone that painted it. And, and it's almost always something very beautiful, very depictive of what was happening in the story. And, uh, It's just something I've gotten in the habit of doing. As uh, even now, we're we're preaching through, uh, teaching through the book of John in the youth ministry. Uh, I've just started Googling each and every story. See, there's a painting on it. So, uh, just to add a little bit of history to it. But as we come to Palm Sunday and, and Good Friday. Uh, or before Good Friday, there's was Monday, Thursday, where God gives, or Jesus gave a new command, a new mandate. I give to you, love one another as I've loved you. And we come on Resurrection Sunday, which now we celebrate as the Lord's Day, uh, uh, which is why we have Sunday as our current. We call it the Sabbath, but it's really the Lord's Day because we want to commemorate the day the Lord had risen. Each and every week, the things that lead up to Palm Sunday. Jesus first announced to his disciples, before they embarked back to Jerusalem, he let them know what was going to happen to the Son of Man, that he was going to be betrayed, he was going to be arrested, he was going to be scourged and mocked by the Gentiles, and he would be put to death, and that he would raise again three days later. So Jesus prepared them for this, and they made their journey they had the triumphal entry where Jesus rode in on a colt and, and everyone was laying down palm trees, palm branches before him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna who comes in the highest. And, and they were praising him and welcoming him as the coming Messiah. And then that, that upset the Pharisees. And so it made the Pharisees mad. then after that, then Jesus went into the tem- temple and cleansed the temple. And at that point, when he started healing people, started healing the lame, healing the blind, then that's when the Pharisees once again started asking this question, what gives you the authority to do these things? And after the Pharisees question his authority, uh, uh, we have a similar, if you go through any of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have a similar, very close uh, arrangement of Passion Week where you might, you'll see that Jesus warns his disciples. You'll see that Jesus rides in into Jerusalem. Then you'll see that the people were celebrating Jesus. You'll see Jesus cleansing the temple and healing people. And there's this poor fig tree that Jesus cursed uh, that wasn't bearing any fruit, even though it was, it was in season. And Jesus cursed it and used it as a lesson for the disciples. And then his authorities questioned. And this is when the tension between Jesus and, and the Pharisees comes to its climax to eventually, they can't take any more of him. And they devise a plan to have Judas betray him and get him arrested so that they can try him and, and uh, put him in trial and then eventually crucify him. And so the events that we're looking at now in the Matthew chapter 21 is when Jesus is now confronting the Pharisees head on. And he's challenging them and he's saying very blatant uh, uh Now, very blatant, condemning statements towards them and their position when it comes to them and their relationship with God. We're going to see that Jesus addresses this topic of rejection. So let's go to our passage, Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Let's read through this and we'll get into it. This is Jesus speaking now. He says, listen to another parable. There's a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And Jesus is asking this to the Pharisees. They said to him, He'll bring those wretches wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds, at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Let's go back to verse 33. He says, listen to another parable. Well, the first parable comes right before that. It's about these two sons. And Jesus poses this question to the the Jewish leaders who are questioning his authority. He says to them, Suppose a man has two sons and he tells the the first son, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he says, I will not, but later he does because he feels bad about it. And then he goes to the second son and says, son, go work in the vineyard today. And the the second son says, I will, sir, and then never does it. He relates that to the Jewish leaders of them being like that second son. And and so this is his first form of uh, the first uh, example that Jesus brings up as a form of rejection. This father who has two sons, and he's saying to one, he's saying to both sons, go work in the vineyard. One says no, but then later repents and does what his father asks. And the first one says I will, but turns out to be a liar, and he never does it. And so Jesus has this even greater statement to them. He says to end that parable, he says, the the prostitutes and the tax collectors will. Enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Now, it was meant to be a shocking statement to them because the Jewish leaders were the ones who were seen, they wanted to be seen as this obedient son of of their God. And Jesus essentially saying to them, they are the disobedient son. And so imagine if we go to some charity event today where... Whatever charity it is, they have motivational speakers there, they have the CEO there and everything. They give speeches on just uh, just how, how good everyone is, who's a part of that organization. Uh, I myself personally used to work in, in uh, uh, the care profession for people with disabilities, and, and we would go to our business uh, uh, functions, and, and where the whole company gets together, and they, they, their, their speakers, and the, the president, and everyone else will, will stand on the stage, and this whole room is filled with all the employees of these, uh, of this care profession, of these care professionals. And they'll say, tell us things like, you are all very special people. You all have a very good heart. Uh, you are not doing this for the money because you are such good people. Uh, and, and no one will ever, ever understand just how big your hearts are. And they will puff us up uh, to make us feel so good about ourselves because what we're doing is so important in the eyes of society. And from the lens of a non-Christian, we would say, yeah, that's right on would say, that's right, we are special people because we do a job that not a lot of people do. And we get paid a lot less than most people get paid. But you know what, we do this job because we are so loving and we are just such good people and good good hearted. Well, we have such big hearts, we just love to give ourselves all the time. And through the, through the eyes of a non-Christian, that's how they would see those things. But as I'm sitting through those talks and those speeches by these motivational speakers as a Christian, all I'm thinking is, how deceived is there this room full of people that chances are they would think themselves to be so good that they have no reason to need God in their life. And that's why Jesus is saying this shocking statement to the Pharisees, because they are that son who does not repent, who has no need for repentance. And so, just imagine approaching this charity event. Maybe you crash the party and you preach the gospel there, and you say things like, "You all think you're good people, but guess what? Murderers and the worst sex offenders who believe in Jesus will enter the kingdom before you." That place would erupt in anger. They think, "What are you thinking?" But that's what Jesus is telling these Pharisees: that the two worst Individuals viewed in their culture were tax collectors and sexual sinners, prostitutes. And Jesus saying, those are these people who have been sitting under my teachings. If you go back to Matthew chapter 9, it's where Jesus first calls Matthew the tax collector, who is going to be his disciple, who we have the gospel of Matthew that we're studying right now. He calls Matthew to, to himself, and Jesus is also teaching other tax collectors and other and prostitutes and other sinners. And in Matthew chapter 9 is where the Pharisees notice this, and they first start saying to his disciples, why is your teacher hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? This should be a shocking statement to any person who is not a Christian, this idea that people in prison, the worst Prisoners in our prison system now, if they were to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they will be saved. And for those who are in charity events all the time, or who feed the poor, feed the hungry, and and give water to other third world countries, that they would not be saved if those are the things that they're basing their goodness and their salvation on. It doesn't matter how many people they feed, how many how many gallons of water they've uh, they've given people, or how much money they've donated to. To, uh, orphans, if their faith is solely not in Christ for their salvation, then those prisoners will enjoy a greater glory than them. When we think of the promises of God, we tend to not think of the other promises of God. Uh, if, if I were to buy, go to the Bible bookstore and pick up a, a book that's labeled The Promises of God, uh, likely, uh, I'm not going to open it up and find the promises of Condemnation or the promises of judgment of God's wrath and judgment. I'm probably not going to find those promises in those promises books that people like to give as devotionals, but they are promises nonetheless. That God has promises for those who do not place their faith in Christ, and that's a very scary thing. And that's why it's so important when we preach the gospel. We don't just preach to them that God loves you and you're amazing, but we preach to them that God God has given us a way to be saved from our sinfulness, because God promises. Punishment, but he also promises forgiveness for those who turn to him. So that's Jesus' first example of rejection. Now we get into our exam- the example we're studying now. Uh, now we're getting past the two sons, but now he gives us example of this other parable. This man, he plants a vineyard. And, and this, this, this vineyard, this picture of the vineyard, they would have been really familiar with because in Isaiah chapter 5, God gives us an exact picture of the nation of Israel that they are as if they were a vineyard planted there by God, and that it turns out they were not producing any fruit. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, you can read through this, but he'll talk about this vineyard that he planted, and no fruit came of it, and so he ended up destroying it. So Jesus is using this imagery that they would have been very familiar with. What is the hardest book in 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 the Old Testament that the Pharisees were impressed that Jesus was teaching from as a youth? The book of Isaiah they would have been very familiar with this imagery that Jesus is using using now to relate to them. So he's saying, there is this owner, landowner, plants a vineyard, uh, creates a working vineyard, and rents it out to vine growers. And before we get into the the story any further, let's go to our character key. Uh, There's many characters in the story. I just want to run this down. You might want to write this down. But let's just go over who... Each character is, as we go through it and we study. But the landowner, in this case, we're going to know that it's going to be God. That Jesus is speaking of this landowner being God, whom they would have known as God, Yahweh, their God of the Old Testament, God of Jacob, God of Isaac, God of Abraham. The vineyard is going to represent their nation of Israel, the Jewish people. The vine growers would have been the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, scribes, chief elders, chief priests. The slaves that that this landowner is going to send to them is going to be God's prophets. The son that the owner sends is going to be Jesus. And the other vine growers that will eventually, this this field will be rented out to, to actually produce a fruit, that's going to represent the repentant sinners, the true people of God who who truly love him, who truly want to live for him. And then after the parable, uh, the cornerstone is going to be Jesus which is actually not part of the parable itself, but it's afterwards. So as we read through this now, let's uh, keep that character key in mind of who we're, who we're talking about here, who Jesus uh, is, what Jesus is trying to get across to these Pharisees. So this landowner plants his vineyard. He rents it out to these people. And, and, and just as he rents it out to these uh, these vine growers... Uh, God entrusted the nation of Israel to, these, uh, to, the, to the leaders of the nation. Uh, first, it was the Levites who were there to do, uh, uh, appear before God on behalf of the nation of Israel, to, to offer up the sacrifices on behalf of the nation of Israel. Well, later on, it became, uh, they, they later on had Pharisees and, and elders and priests, and, and that came much later on. Which is actually not from the Old Testament scriptures, but they—they—they—they they, they, uh, they, came out of their own system of what they thought they should do as God's people. Uh, but now they have these other Jewish leaders who are seen as the righteous ones in the nation of Israel, and they're in charge. They see themselves as being in charge of leading the Jewish people into righteousness. And it says here that. In verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. And this is just descriptive of of how the nation of Israel treated their prophets in the Old Testament. In Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, God says it very clearly how they, how they treated all of his prophets. That they, they rejected them. They were constantly killing them off. Uh, we see this time and time again in the prophets of, of Jeremiah or Micaiah. And there's other prophets of God that he sent to them. And by the way, when, when God sent prophets to them, is usually because uh, they needed correction. And just like any employee in any company, the only time the employees should fear their boss is, Coming on an unexpected visit is when they're not doing their job properly. Which is why these people rejected these slaves who are coming in the name of this landowner and they killed them and they beat them up and they threw them back out because they knew what they were doing was not going to be approved by the landowner. Now, in this case, when we talk about uh, he sent his slaves to gather this produce, you know, we want to keep in mind that, that uh, relate this produce to the fruit of the nation of Israel, the fruit that God wants to see from his own people. And what is that fruit? It's bringing him glory, the praise, and the honor. Uh, we see it just in Jesus' teachings. He says, you shall know them by their fruit. He's talking in reference to false prophets. Or to those who say they are coming in the name of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, you shall know them by their fruits. In John 15, Jesus is going to say that apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot produce any good fruit apart from being united with Christ. So this fruit is the very same thing. It is the kind of fruit that brings God glory, brings him honor, brings him praise. That's what God is uh, seeking from his people. He's seeking worship from his people. So that's what these prophets are, are coming in the name of, the, of this land. These slaves are coming in the name of the landowner. They're coming to gather this fruit. They come to see what are these people producing, and and, and uh, let's bring it back to the father, to the landowner. I'm going to get my turns mixed up here. Sorry. But now let's move on to the next verse. But then afterwards. After these slaves are beaten and rejected and killed, his next thing is to send his son. When people reject God's correction, uh, we're told in Scripture that it's a very natural thing. Jesus says in John 3, he says, This is the judgment that the light has become into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. For fear that his deeds will be exposed. Which I think kind of describes where these vine growers are coming from. When the owner sends these slaves to come check in on them. And and bring back this fruit they're supposed to be producing. Their fear is that their deeds will be exposed. And Jesus goes on in John chapter 3. He says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought or worked out in God. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who be- say they believe in God, but they don't want it to disrupt their life at all. Uh, they-, they have a belief in Jesus, but there's no- you- if you look at their own life, or, the- or if they were to inspect their own life, there's really nowhere in their life where their-, their faith interrupts their own way of living. That they're in fact still serving themselves instead of serving God. And that's where we find these, these vine growers, these wicked vine growers. They are not serving the landowner at all. They are hired out by him, but they're not serving him at all. They want the fruit for themselves. They want the produce for themselves, the inheritance for themselves. And, and they are serving themselves. This is why as Christians we should praise God anytime we feel guilty. When we read the scriptures and we know that we are that we have done wrong in the Lord's eyes, that we should be thankful for those things, because that's God's discipline. And whose job is it to discipline children? The Father's job. So by being convicted by the Word of God, being convicted by the Holy Spirit, being disciplined. By, by being corrected, by, by allowing the word of God to interrupt our lives, that's confirmation to us as believers that we are indeed children of God, that we are actually concerned about the things of God. So now this landowner sa- sends his son. And keep in mind that Jesus is using earthly parables. And so when the owner says, uh, they will respect my son, uh, this is not to reflect any kind of negligence on God's part, where God was fooled, where, where God maybe thought they would respect his, respect his son, Jesus, and they, in fact, rejected them and, and God was maybe surprised by that. That's not how we should be taking this. God is never surprised. It was his will from the beginning for Christ to come and die on the cross for our sins, that everything in the Old Testament was eventually leading up to this point, and now everything after that points back to the cross. But now this owner sends his son because the son would have come with the same authority as the owner himself, as the father himself. If, if you understand that the son of the company is coming to visit your company, it, what not the joke that they could fire you, right? I'm the son of the boss. Uh, uh, your boss is my dad. I can fire you if I want. And Isn't that kind of a joke in today's work, work industry? that the son were to appear at your workplace, it's almost as if your boss is showing up. So the son would have come in the same, in a very similar authority with his dad, because who's going to inherit that vineyard? The son. Now these people have this brilliant idea that maybe if they kill the son, they get to keep everything that they've worked for so far in this vineyard. And he said, this is, uh, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, in verse 39, and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus is asking now, what will he do to those vine growers? Jesus made it pretty clear that he was coming with the same authority as his Father in heaven. John chapter 5 we see that for just as a father raises the dead and gives him life even so the son also gives life to whomever he wishes for not even the father judges anyone but he who has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but passed out of death into life. That's the authority that Jesus came to earth with, the authority of his Father who sent him. And this authority is what's being questioned by the pharisees and the jewish leaders that they don't think jesus has the authority to to heal people on the sabbath they don't think he has the authority to cleanse the temple to clear it out they don't think he has the authority to do any of these things because he's claiming to be equal with god that's the very thing that jesus was killed for so the son was killed and what is the inheritance that they're seeking these vine growers what does the fruit represent again The glory, the praise, the honor that belongs to God and God alone. What is it that the Pharisees are constantly after according to Jesus? The praise and the glory and honor from the Jewish people, not directed towards God, but to them. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7 or Matthew 6? He says, Don't be like the hypocrites. Why? When they do their good deeds, they want to be honored by everyone else. When they are seen in the religious pious acts when they fast and do things like that they want to be seen by everyone and when they pray and they use many words when they pray and they just babble on what do they want to do they want to be heard by everyone else so the pharisees were seeking the honor and the glory and the praise coming from the jewish people that should have been all been directed towards god and it was the jewish leader's who wanted to keep the inheritance for themselves. They wanted the confirmation from everyone else. That they were righteous. That they were good people. And they were, they were fully dependent on what other people thought of them. As their uh, as their ticket to heaven. That they were self-righteous as we say in the church. Self-righteous means that if uh, someone were to ask you. Why should God let you into heaven if you were to die? Self-righteous Answers look like this, well, because I'm a pretty good person, or because I've helped a lot of people, or I've been to church many, many times, or because uh, I'm a good husband or a good wife, Uh, because I'm a very loving person, or my favorite is, well, because I kept the commands, you know, uh, I've never killed, and I don't steal, and I don't lie. Like, sometimes I think that people think it was the three commandments of Moses, Because typically when you ask people, uh, do you obey the commandments commandments of God or the the Ten Commandments, they'll say, oh yeah, I I obey those. I don't kill, steal, or lie. And that's it. That's usually the only ones people tend to name. They don't even start with number one. So a lot of people, I think, they think it's the three commandments in the law because it's their self-righteousness that gives them that comfort, that I feel like a good person. People tell me I'm a good person. So of all this praise and honor and glory that I'm receiving from other people, I must be a good person. And they're not comparing themselves to God's holy standard, but they're comparing themselves to everyone else. But that's what the Pharisees are after. And that's what these these vine growers are after. They wanted the inheritance. They wanted all the praise, glory, and honor going to them. And that's what the Jewish leaders were after as well. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is one of our favorite Bible verses around here at this church. It is it is by grace you've been saved through what faith, right? It is none of yourselves a gift from God so that no man can boast. That's what the 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 Jewish leaders' entire religion was based upon. Was based upon how much they could boast. When the Pharisee prayed on the steps of the temple saying thank god that i am not like this tax collector over here they based themselves on how much they could boast and jesus said do not be like that so now jesus poses the question you know the pharisees are still wondering why jesus is using this this uh, parable and so now jesus poses them the question okay here's the story what do you think And I love how Jesus always lets the other people answer the question. He let them decide, who was the obedient son? And they said, well, the son that obeyed his father. He said, you're correct. Now he asks, what should the landowner do to these wicked vine growers? And in their own words, they said, he should bring those wretches to a wretched end. Now, it, it, he's uh, doubling up on the evilness there. Now, uh, if you were to read it in the original language, it, it reads more like uh, he should bring them to a severe ending. Those evil people, they should be brought to a severe ending. And this is coming from the Pharisees' own mouths. They're condemning themselves, and they don't even know it. And Jesus, without saying it, he's essentially saying, you're correct. The landowner will bring them to justice and he will rent it out to good vine growers who will actually produce fruit and bring it back to the landowner. All that the owner owns and all that he deserves, all the fruit and everything they work for goes back to the owner. And the landowner is going to find those people who will do that for him instead of try to cheat him out of stuff thinking that they're going to get away with this. That was the whole vine grower's plan, isn't it? That they thought that they could actually get away with this somehow. They get away with killing off the slaves. They get away with killing the son and somehow still inherit all this stuff that didn't even belong to them. What in their, right, in, in their mind told them that they would have even had a chance of getting away with this? In the last part of the story now, Jesus relates it to a familiar psalm, Psalm 118, where he says, Have you ever read in the scriptures, which is a hypothetical question, of course they've read it, of course they know it. Have you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. What's the importance of the cornerstone in that age? Well, the cornerstone is the first one that's laid before you build anything else. That all other stones are built around the cornerstone in reference to the cornerstone. That stone is the first one that's laid down so that you know if you're building your building correctly. And Jesus being the cornerstone is the stone that we build our lives around to know if we're getting it right or not. And Jesus gave the the story of uh, a parable of the two foundations. The wise man is like the one who builds his house on rock. The foolish man is like the one who builds it on sand. So he lets them know, using familiar passages that these religious experts would know about. Haven't you ever read these things? And the answer for them is, of course we have. And this is a more blatant form of rejecting Jesus. We have a, a subtle form of rejecting Jesus. Is those who, uh, they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And they'll just kind of say it matter of fact. No emotion tied to it at all. Uh, no sense of devotion to it. They, they'll just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And they just go on living their life how they please. But then there's this other, uh, that, that's a subtle rejection of Christ, I think. There's a sense that we, we say we believe, but it has not, had any effect or change in our lives. Uh, We haven't had to change our lives at all around for God because uh, we might think ourselves, uh, well, our lives are already pretty good. At least now I get to go to heaven. But then this is a more blatant form of rejection. Killing and rejecting the authority that comes from God. Saying, nope, we're not going to accept that. We're going to do things our own way. Uh, There's religions that are more blatant forms of rejecting Jesus. Uh, atheism is one, uh, a blatant rejection of who God is or the existence of God. And that is a blatant form of rejection. Uh, other religions would have would have blatant rejections of Jesus so that they just simply do not believe in him at all or they believe in uh, him as a good teacher but they still believe in maybe uh, um, uh, resurrecting a, in a new life and having multiple lives here on earth or on other earth or many earths or whatever it might be or believing in many different gods. And then there's religions that are more subtle about rejecting Jesus. And these are religions that might seem close to Christianity, but they are not Christian. Islam would claim that they love Jesus, but they have a very different belief in Jesus. They don't believe him to be God. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, these three are the, the top three examples of religions that claim to have an acceptance of Jesus in some form, but not in a saving faith type of belief in Jesus. If you look at their very own websites, you'll see things like what they believe about salvation. Well, they believe in faith plus works. You'll see it in different languages. They'll say, well, we believe that uh, a person is saved by believing in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for his sins, and everything looks good so far uh, on first glance for the, to the untrained eye. But then they'll say other things like, and uh, the obedience to Either to his commands or to the other books they have in their religion or other things. Essentially, they're saying it's faith plus works equals salvation. And that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is faith equals salvation. And works are going to follow because if you truly believe, if you Believing means that you love God. If you love God, if you love someone, you're going to have actions that come out of that love, out of that belief. And so, inevitably, you're going to have works that come out of your faith. But you don't have to earn it through your works. This is why we have prison ministries. This is why people have, uh, want their last rites on their deathbeds, even though it might come from a Catholic priest. But the idea is we could still preach the gospel to someone in their dying breath if they receive the gospel wholeheartedly and reverently and and, uh, uh, sincerely, they will receive forgiveness for all their sin. That's the gospel. The gospel says that even the worst uh, murderers and sex offenders in our prisons, if they have a true repentance and faith, they, they will be forgiven. That's the gospel. Because the gospel also says that those who are not on the level of murderers and sex offenders... That they are just as guilty of breaking God's law as they are. The gospel also says that. This is, those are subtle forms of rejecting Jesus. It is thinking that you have faith, but it really doesn't come out in any shape or form in your daily living. That your life is not disrupted by the word of God. Your life has not been disrupted at all by the fact that you are technically a servant of Christ. Uh, Romans 6:15 says, "What then shall we sin? Because uh, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be." Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, if you're serving yourself, and all of a sudden you become a servant of God, your life is going to be interrupted. You can't just say you believe in Jesus and not have your life interrupted by the word of God. Because you are now serving God in whom you are used to serving yourself and serving your own sin. And you're completely ignorant of your sinful state. And so you're serving, we, I was serving literally in my ignorance of righteousness. And so now that I have knowledge of, uh, through Christ of what righteousness really is, it's going to disrupt my whole life. That I don't know how to love my wife without Christ. I don't know how to love my kids or be a good father without Christ. Uh, I could do my best. But I think a lot of times we have backwards. We try to love God the way that we love other people on earth. But what does God say in his word? He says, no, you love others how, uh, uh, how, how God has loved you. Like our love for God is the example God instructs us how to love Him, and knowing how to love God instructs us how to love others. That's why in Ephesians 5, when he talks about marriage, it says do, uh, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It doesn't say love Christ as you love your wives, because we could have all kinds of answers to that question, or to that solution. Is love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ is the standard. And so, in me trying to be a husband or a father... My very own ways of being a husband and father should be interrupted by the word of God because my ways are not going to be good. My ways are going to be selfish, inherently selfish. They're going to be self-serving. I'm going to want to be an absent father. I want to be a selfish husband. I want to sit and and not have to do anything when I get home. If I were left to my own devices, I would be a horrible husband and a horrible father. But Christ shows me how. So we know this idea if we're going to say we believe in god and we believe in jesus we also we should be comfortable replacing that word with love i think a lot of people might be comfortable saying that oh i I love jesus instead of saying i believe in jesus because it, it almost merits that you have to say it with some emotion you can't just get away with saying oh yeah i love jesus it should be like, no, I love Jesus, that when I read his word, I'm falling in love with Jesus as I understand what he did for me on the cross. And it keeps pointing back to how sinful I am and how undeserving I am of God's love. And that's why I love Jesus. But I think a lot of people will be uncomfortable using that word. Because I think a lot of people have a guilty conscience about that. Of saying, well, do I love Jesus? If I'm going to say I love something, I better show proof of it. I hope I have proof of it. And so people tend to be a lot more comfortable saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And you could say a lot more nonchalantly. You could say it with a lot less emotion and, and still leave people satisfied or Christians satisfied. Saying, oh, yeah, good. They believe in Jesus. When we say we believe, we say that we love. That is what the command, greatest commandment is all about. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, soul, and soul. And strength. That was the in Deuteronomy six, what they would have uh, they would have held to as Jewish people, the the Shema that they would have had to memorize that as young children. Oh, what is the greatest commandment to keep? To love the Lord your God. Love Him. John fourteen, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, they will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Is that simple? Jesus deals with three different types of rejection. You know, we're not getting get into the third one, but uh, Pastor Andy kind of preached on it last week in the Luke version of, uh, of, this, of a very similar parable of what it's like for a man to throw a dinner and have his first invites reject him. And so he fills his room, he fills his feast with, other, with everyone else and those who were supposedly his friends who saw things more important than going to their friend's feast They would later never, they would discover that they would never even make it to the feast. That they gave up their place of being invited to that feast. And that's Jesus' third example after this. I encourage you to read it on your own in Matthew 22. But he he uses this as another example of how the Jewish leaders have rejected him, whether subtly or blatantly. And that's what it means when Jesus closes this by saying, Whoever falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever, whomever it falls will scatter him like dust. So whether someone blatantly rejects Jesus, or they do it subtly, in a way where they just, with apathy, or they just figured they're a good person, they have nothing against Jesus, but they just didn't see their a need to live for Jesus. There's plenty of people who would say that. That, well, I believe I believe in God, but I don't, I believe in my version of God, or, something along those lines. There's people who subtly reject Jesus, but they won't put themselves them, the on the line of, well, I'm against Jesus, or I'm against God. People like to ride the fence and say, well, I'm, I'm not against God. I just think I'm a pretty good person. I don't need him. I don't need his help in my life. And that is a subtle rejection of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, this cornerstone, it doesn't matter if you fall on it or it falls on you, it's still, you're still going to be destroyed when you come up against this cornerstone, it doesn't matter if it's subtle rejection or blatant rejection. Those who do not place their faith in Christ alone for his salvation are going to have destruction waiting for them. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we praise you that even as as believers, as people who know that we're saved because we understand what Christ has done for us. That we will still struggle with honoring you and giving you all the glory and the praise and the honor in every area of our life. But you are so patient with us that you allow us to grow in our obedience to you. That as we still, there's still areas in our lives that are constantly disobedient to you, that we are still constantly sinning against you, because of the one sacrifice that was enough for all the sins for all time, we have no fear of losing our salvation. We have no fear of being separated from your love. And so we praise you, the fact that just how patient you are with us, that you allow us to grow in our obedience. That we are never going to reach holiness in this life. As we read in Romans, uh, sanctification is the result of, of, of living a new life with you in Christ that we are constantly going to be worked on. And Philippians says that we are uh, we know that you will uh, complete the work that you began in us. So I thank you that our, our, our salvation is not based upon earning it in any way or having to prove it, that even a, someone on their deathbed could receive you in their dying moments could be saved just through faith in Christ. We, we worship you because of that. So We thank you for your love that is displayed not because we are deserving of your love but in the very fact that we don't deserve your love that's how much your love is displayed to us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for those things. We, we ask for your help to continue to allow your word to interrupt our lives, to disrupt our way of living, uh, to disrupt our, our tendency to want to serve ourselves and not want to serve you wholeheartedly. And so we just thank you once again, and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.